I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fit the Mission. Where do you turn to when you need a break from all the politics? The polls and political history point to a likely good night for Republicans. The number one issue was uh, inflation, but the number two issue was abortion. There's no land wave in the dozens of don't know when the president You might turn to sports, but these days it's hard to take the politics out of anything. At the Houston Astros World Series Victory Parade on Monday, Texas Senator Ted Cruz was greeted with booze and a beer can being thrown at his head. Whether you think he deserved it or not, politics has inundated everything. Just for a change of pace, we thought that we'd set aside the politicians for a day at Fifth Emission and just talk about San Francisco's greatest baseball hero. He was a gigantic star. It's just hard to quantify it. But I think it's critical to understand who and what Willie Mays is. The midterms weren't the only thing that happened this week. The documentary Say Hey Willie Mays also debuted on HBO and HBO Max. It tells a story of the San Francisco icon from his childhood in Jim Crow, Alabama during the Depression, through his brilliant baseball career, mostly with the Giants, and on to the present day. Mays is 91. He's a private man, but you can still catch a glimpse of him at Oracle Park sometimes, and he's also agreed to be interviewed in this documentary, which was directed by Nelson George. Then my dad, they used to work in the steel mill, and he would always come home early, like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and he would show me how to do a lot of things, because he was a good baseball player. If you only know Willie Mays as the elder statesman who sometimes waves to the crowd at Giants games, there's a lot to learn from Say Hey Willie Mays. Chronicle national baseball writer John Shea could tell you all about him. He wrote the biography, 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid. And I'm pretty sure he's my only co-worker who can say that Willie Mays considers him a friend. Shea is featured in the documentary, and lucky us, he's here to talk about why everyone, not just baseball fans, should learn about Mays' legacy. Shea is here to chat about the baseball hero's time in the Negro Leagues, his rise to stardom with the New York Giants when he famously played stickball in the streets of Harlem with neighborhood kids before he went to the ballpark, and how San Francisco didn't exactly give him the warm welcome you might expect when he arrived to the city in 1957. The documentary clip you heard earlier declared that, quote, it's critical to understand who and what Willie Mays is. I started my conversation with Chronicle National Baseball writer and Willie Mays biographer John Shea by asking him who and what Willie Mays is to him. People think Willie Mays is a baseball player. Well, he's more than that. He's an iconic figure. He's an American hero, a living legend who's with us today. And he always talks about other people, but it's a career and a life, an exemplary life. And a guy who has inspired millions, but also details who inspired him. That's that's the gist of it. Yes, he was inspired early in his career, but he spent the rest of his life inspiring others. And of course, there have been a lot of great ball players. What made Willie Mays special? And you wrote a biography about him. Why did you want to do that? Well, I mean, I grew up in the Bay Area watching him as a kid. And he was the greatest all-time player who ever lived. And, you know, more than Hank Aaron, more than Roberto Clemente, more than Babe Ruth, more than anybody you could name. And I can go on and on forever about why that is the case. But 
as the national baseball writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, I was able to step back and maybe write a little bit more detail about things other than the game. And Willie Mays was in the clubhouse every day because he was given a contract to be Willie Mays, to be an ambassador, a coach, an advisor, just accessible to anybody who's smart enough to uh, hang with him. And when he held court in the clubhouse, I certainly was there. And then I wrote about him quite a bit. And he probably trusted me because he kept talking with me. And sure enough, I asked him in about 2005 about a book project. And he said, I'd like to see this book in classrooms. And that was his answer. That was the uh, project of a lifetime. And now that the documentary is coming out, in which a lot of people are interviewed who were interviewed in the book, that's kind of a second generation of a project of a lifetime. And as someone who spent time with Willie Mays, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot, what's it like to be in a room with him? Well, it's a dream that I never imagined coming to fruition. (laughs) I mean, who would have thunk it as a 12-year-old kid going out to Candlestick Park? And he doesn't trust a lot of people because he came up in a generation where there were no agents representing players. There was no free agency. Mm-hmm. They didn't make a lot of money. He topped off at 165000 a lot of money in those days, but not nearly what they're making now, $30, $40 million a year. Mm-hmm. I came back to the Bay Area from San Diego where I went to school in 1988. So I've known him since then. So it, it's mm-hmm. it's remarkable that I've been able to document his life story and his messaging. I kind of take that as a really important responsibility. When he has something to say, he trusts me to document it, whether it's in the Chronicle, whether it's later in life in the book. But still, I continue to visit him and hang with him and kind of be a friend, which he he once said I was his friend. And mm-hmm. I was kind of speechless for a few days, but I'm over that, and uh, I'm, I'm still in awe. <laughs> well, you know, for Bay Area kids like myself, I, I was born and raised here. Willie Mays is synonymous with San Francisco. Hmm. There's a statue of him, obviously. How does he feel about all of that, that sort of association with this very special city? You know, he was taught to be humble and not brag. His father, Willie Howard Mays Sr., was in his life, a big part of his upbringing. And I spoke with Bill Greeson, who's still going strong at 98. He was Willie's teammate on the 1948 Birmingham Black Barons, a legendary Negro Leagues team out of Birmingham, Alabama. Bill Greeson said, you know, that Willie was a teenager at the time, Bill quite a few years older, but they were rookies at the time. It was their first year there. So Bill told me that they were a lot alike, that they were both taught by their parents to be humble and not brag. And Mm -hmm. so I think Willie has carried that all the way through his life. And no matter what, he, he won't say, I'm the best ever, or I deserve more, or Candlestick Park and the Polo Grounds robbed me of home runs. I should have had more than 660. He he will never say that. He once said, John, isn't 660 enough? I said, I said yeah, yeah, it is. Dodger pitcher Claude Austin delivers. Willie connects and hammers it 380 feet over the right field fence for his 512th round tripper. And he also hammers a new National League career home run record into the books. So it's kind of refreshing to have a superstar a hero who 
who doesn't brag? Well, I'd love to learn more about his history. You know, as you mentioned, he started out in pro ball in 1948 in the Negro Leagues. And that was a year after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in the white major leagues. Obviously, it wasn't an instant transformation, but what was the racial landscape in baseball when Willie started playing? Well, imagine young Willie Mays graduating from high school in Fairfield, right outside of Birmingham, and right away the Giants sign him. So he goes from an all-black league, the Negro Leagues, where he played as a sophomore, junior, and senior in high school. So Mm. the Giants sign him, send him to the Trenton Giants of the Interstate League, and he's the only minority in the league. So he goes from an all-black league to an all-white league, and he's hearing the same things that Jackie was hearing. He once told me when we were sitting down in his room and I was interviewing him for the book, and he said, John, I didn't know if it was worth it. And I almost cried. I mean, I, I said, wait, what, what? You mean you were thinking of stepping away and going back to Birmingham? He said, yeah, playing for the Black Barons, working in the mills, whatever it was that kids would do. But luckily for you and me and everybody in the world, he overcame those obstacles and racist slurs and all the things Jackie was hearing and uh, sleeping in a different hotel, eating in a different restaurant. He couldn't even hang out with his teammates. He's a living testament to how hard life was. You know, Jim Crow era, he grew up hard of the Great Depression. You know, he didn't have money. He had He had a roof over his head, he had friends, he had family, and he had a playground. So he was perfectly content and happy. Looking back, he didn't complain about his childhood. But it's just an amazing story, isn't it? Mm, Yes, it is. And part of his amazing story are these memorable moments that he had in his career. And one of them was in the 1954 World Series. It's known as The Catch. And you say in the documentary that the 6.5 seconds from when the ball hit the bat until Mays threw it back into the infield are 6.5 seconds every American should know about. So even if you don't follow or love baseball, why should every American know about those 6.5 seconds? Yeah, there's so much to those 6.5 seconds. Vic Wirtz hitting the ball and Willie Mays chasing it down in the spacious polo grounds and throwing it back. It happened quickly, but we'll know it and we should know it forever. I mean, the World Series was being televised into our living rooms in black and white at the time. Television, especially in sports, was relatively new. And the baby boomers were out in force as kids living in a new world post-World War II. And the Great Maze was the first African-American superstar in baseball and winning over our hearts with his grace and and awareness and joy, athleticism, just having a ball playing the game. And and there goes Willie with this unbelievable confidence and tracking down this ball that uh, would be a home run in any other facility in baseball. Mm. It was the polo ground. So it was 483 feet to dead center, 483. But Mays could run forever, and and he did on this occasion. So, So it was a new era. And and this was a journey for Mays, you know, in life and in those six and a half seconds. And he's successful. He makes the catch. 
And as he says in the book and documentary, it's the throw that made that play. They win the game and they sweep the mighty Cleveland Indians who were favored to sweep themselves. So anyway, six and a half seconds, you know, the journey's complete. Our dreams come true. Uh, it, it'll always be remembered because of that great film clip that we see. It allows us to forever talk about it. And Willie, Willie Mays made it happen. After a short break, we'll talk about the rude, well, frankly, racist welcome that Willie Mays got when the Giants moved to San Francisco. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. John Shea, we've been talking about Willie Mays' rise to stardom with the New York Giants. A few years after that iconic catch in the 1954 World Series, the Giants moved to San Francisco. He's the face of the team, obviously a really great player. And San Francisco, the city doesn't really take to him. Tell me about his experience. Right. The Giants moved out in 58. So late in 57, he and his then wife wanted to buy a house. And it was uh, 175 Mira Loma. And he was denied because of the color of his skin. It was an all-white neighborhood. In San Francisco. I mean, here was Willie Mays coming out from New York as the face of a franchise, as the face of West Coast baseball. Major League Baseball was not west of the Mississippi. And then the Dodgers and Giants move out in 58. And here's Willie Mays denied a house in his new mm -hmm. city. He wants to move there. He wants to live there year round. He left New York. He put it behind him. And they said, no. They said, no, you're black. You can't move in here. And... <laughs> And Mayor Christopher, the mayor at the time, said, Willie, why don't you live with me and we'll find you another house? No. And the realtor at the time said, Willie, I'll look around another neighborhood. I'll find you another house. Better than that. No. So Willie Mays, not just for himself, but he fought and fought and fought and got the house. And it made headlines in the Chronicle and other outlets. But it was Willie Mays not just fighting because he wanted the house for him and his wife, but so the next generation of minorities, maybe next week, maybe next year, would be able to move into the same neighborhood who were not Willie Mays, who, who would not make headlines and who would be denied and just go away because nobody knew who they were and nobody cared. But here's Willie Mays setting the tone. And, and it's kind of the messaging he provides throughout his life is, you know, fight for what you believe in and don't don't allow, you know, the bigots to win. And and he didn't. And it was a pretty good story. Mm. Now, at the same time, though, John, you know, Willie Mays was sometimes criticized for not being as vocal about advancing the rights of black Americans or weighing in on civil rights like the generation of black athletes younger than him, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, Arthur Ashe, and Jackie Robinson had some harsh words from him, too, on this topic. How fair was that? It was unfair. And growing up, I thought exactly what you said. So in the process of researching the book, I looked into that and I asked the question. I asked Reggie Jackson and I asked Hank Aaron, who was only three years younger. I asked Maury Wills. I asked Willie McCovey. I asked many younger African-American ballplayers who came up after Willie. And each of them said, no, 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 no. 
Willie did this for me. Willie did this for us. Willie set the tone. Those people you mentioned, you know, from Ali to to Russell, you know, they were younger than Willie. So Willie had to go through things they maybe didn't have to. Willie mm-hmm. followed Jackie. And of course, Jackie was much older. He broke in with the Brooklyn Dodgers at 28. So he was worldly and established when he got to the Dodgers. Willie was a year out of high school as a 20-year-old kid patrolling center field at the polo grounds. So when you compare those two, obviously, there are differences. And Willie Mays' dad always told him, he said, hey, you know, don't go out and talk too much. Just put your head down, play the game, enjoy the game, respect the game, respect your teammates, respect your opponents. But Willie made a difference. I, I interviewed Bill Clinton for the book, and his great line, Willie Mays made it absurd to be a racist. So what Willie did at the time through the indelible images and the actions on the field, sometimes that's greater than words. And Jackie Robinson wrote a book in the early 60s in which he interviewed so many people around the game, black and white and Latino, about race in the game and uh, integration and the problems within. And Willie didn't want to be interviewed. So Jackie criticized him in the book and said, wouldn't it be great for readers to hear from this man who came you know, from the slums of Birmingham to live in this beautiful home in San Francisco, you know, let's hear his journey. And Willie didn't preach or march. He set the example in his way, you know, through playing the game and through speaking with people in the clubhouse or behind the dugout or at his home or, and this is covered quite a lot in the documentary. He did a lot more than maybe what I knew and what other people knew growing up. John, this documentary is a part of this body of work that's going to teach future generations about Willie Mays. Your book is going to be a part of that as well. What do you think is the lasting legacy that Mays will have? How will San Francisco remember him? Well, I I think it is important to remember him or, or to know about him, the young generations to read and to see and to hear stories about because he was such an impactful ball player, impactful person. And like I said, he he changed lives, he changed minds. And there's only one Willie Mays. And from the talent to the flair to the joy, not only the best overall player who ever lived, but the most entertaining. Well, John Shea, such a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to watching the documentary, as I'm sure our listeners will. I appreciate the time. Thank you, Cecilia. Enjoyed it. John Shea is the Chronicle's national baseball writer and the author of the book, 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid. He also appears in the new documentary, Say Hey Willie Mays, which you can watch on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Find Shea's reporting as well as other sports coverage on sfchronicle.com slash sports or on the Chronicle app. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode and to you for listening. <laughs> 